maybe you have kids and you go to the grocery store. I'm thinking about uh, maybe not a grocery store, but Lowe's Home Improvement. You go into Lowe's Home Improvement. There's the big area where you can get a grocery cart, but over to the side, they have these race car grocery carts. Like, they are awesome. Like, you kind of want to be a little kid for a few minutes so you can get into that grocery cart that's a race car. Maybe your kids love that. Maybe you're like, no, you're not doing that. It's going to be annoying because it's way bigger than normal grocery carts, so you're going to bang into something. But anyway, your kids get into that grocery cart, and what happens? Inevitably, they, they sit down in the race car, and they grab the steering wheel, and they are jerking it around like crazy because that's how you really drive, right? Like that, mom, that's not good if you're doing that. So they're just grabbing that, and they are going. And so you're pushing that cart, and they're like, they think they're just like, in the race. And so they may even make those noises with their mouths like, you know, they're like, they are in the race. But there's something that the kids don't always realize. They aren't driving. They aren't actually doing anything except this, but they're not driving the grocery cart. Mom and dad are driving no matter how hard that little boy or little girl tries to turn the wheel, mom and dad are still in control. Such is life. We begin today with our Reset series talking about time and priorities. And part of resetting in 2023 as a church is to realize we, like those children, are not in control. We need to pull back, take our hands off the wheel for a minute, because it actually doesn't do anything anyway, and realize that our good God is in control, so we don't have to be. We need our hearts and minds and lives to be reset according to God and His Word. So over the next four weeks, we're going to consider being reset biblically in four ways. I've heard one person say, I can tell you a lot about a person if I see um, their calendar and their checkbook. Now, most people don't actually use a checkbook anymore, so fill in the blank on whatever that is, bank account or whatever. I can tell you a lot about a person, who they are, their character, how they live, what their beliefs are, if you look at those. So that's kind of what we're looking at the next two weeks. Today we're talking about time and priorities. Next week we're going to talk about finances and what that means to glorify God there. And then the next two weeks we're going to talk about two specific practices that are important in being reset. We're going to talk about fasting. What does that look like, and how should we do it? And then we're going to talk about rest. What does that look like biblically, and how should we do it? So that's what we have the next four weeks, as, or this week and then three weeks after this, as we have this reset series. But for today, please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. This will not be our normal diet of a verse-by-verse expository sermon. Um, It's going to be a little broader than that, looking at several different passages, and that's probably the way the next four weeks are going to be. And then we're going to be diving into Joshua, where we will be doing a verse-by-verse series starting at the very end of January into the rest of the spring. James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word. We're going to look at this text and many others, a holistic view of time and priorities, not hitting everything we could hit, though I would love to. We'd be here the rest of the day. But here's the overarching grid for this message, kind of the main point, thinking of time and priorities. First is this, God is in control, so be humble. God is in control, so be humble. Second, life is toil, so be a realist. Life is toil, so be a realist. And third, life is a mist, so enjoy it. Life is a mist, so enjoy it. So first we're going to look, about, look at the enemies of biblical thinking for time and priorities. We're going to look at several enemies over the next several minutes. I think this is my longest point just to give you the forewarning. Several enemies on biblical thinking for time and priorities. First enemy is this, presumption and pride. That's what our text gets at. James 4 passage is just deeply practical. James itself as a book of the Bible is deeply practical. John Piper says, James' burden is to help us overcome our bent toward arrogance. We all have a bent toward arrogance. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. There's presumption all over that passage. So let's break it down a little bit. First quote, today or tomorrow we will go. That's what he's saying. Those who say today or tomorrow we will go. There's an assumption that we will be able to, we'll have the physical, mental, and emotional ability to go today or maybe tomorrow. I'll, I get to choose. It's, it's your choice. We will go and stay because we are in control. There's an assumption that God will allow us. Like that child in the race car grocery cart, today we're going to the toy section or to the candy aisle. Really? Only if mom or dad take you to that aisle. So today or tomorrow we'll go. Next quote, we will go to such and such a town. There's an assumption of place. There's an assumption of location, presuming that we know the right choice, even the right choice that would be profitable. We will decide where we will go. Third quote in there, we will spend a year there. There's presumption that God will allow the person to spend the year there. John Piper says, if you get there, you don't know if you will spend a year there or a minute there. Presumption is that the people of the town will allow you to spend a year there. I dare say if you try to get a visa for some countries that you're like, hey, we're going to go there, oftentimes they're like, no, you won't go there. Denied. COVID showed us that, right? You can make all the plans you want in a matter of a few days, done. Where are you going to be? You're going to be at home. That's what you're going to be doing, right? The presumption. Next, we will trade and make a profit. There's a pride and presumption 
to all this. The assumption is that trade and business will go well. I don't know too many business owners that are like, today I hope we fail. Like this year, our goal is to decline in sales and lose it all and go bankrupt. Like no one says that. But there's presumption here that a profit will happen. But what if it doesn't? What if business is hard? What if the locals that they're going to go to actually don't like you or don't need the product that you're there to sell? I was talking to a friend of mine who lived for years in Peru, and he said that strawberry season where they lived in Peru, there was just such an abundance of strawberries, which is like, let's go, road trip, abundance of strawberries. It was like 50 cents. Like they're just giving them away for like a big old gallon of strawberries because there's just so many. But what if you're from California, the largest area of strawberry crops in the U.S., and you're like, you know what would be really good business plan? Let's sell strawberries, Californian strawberries in Lima, Peru. Because you didn't do your study and you're like, hey, I hear Peru really likes strawberries. The most people in Peru love strawberries. Well, yeah, they, they grow them there like crazy. And if you have a business, business plan to go there, it's going to cost more to export the strawberries to Peru, and you're not going to make a thing because they already have them. They have the abundance. So there's an assumption here. We will trade. We will make a profit. John Piper, in his sometimes very brusque way, says, if you spend a year there, you don't know if you will trade or be flat on your back, paralyzed by a fall. Like, <laughs> Piper. He's like, boom. Here's what James is getting at. James 4.14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Friends, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. One of the greatest enemies of biblical thinking about time and priorities is our presumption and our pride. But James gives us some answers on how to to, to think biblically. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, so here's the key, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And this isn't just saying, by the way. This is like a wholehearted life of believing the Lord's in control. He's guiding the grocery cart. And I'm in the race car, grocery cart. And then James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. If we are pridefully making our own plans and not consulting God, we are boasting in our arrogance, James says. We are forgetting that our life is a mist and that the Lord is pervasively providential in this life. We are forgetting that we are not in control. So James is not saying don't plan, but to faithfully rely on, consult, be led by God in the planning. If the Lord wills, we will do this. We're going to work on a plan that we submit to the Lord. Lord, we want to be led the whole way by your plan for business, by your plan for family, by your plan on how we live, where we go, what we do. That's how we cultivate humility 
and kill pride. That's how each and every day we pull the weeds of pride from our heart and we sow the seeds of humility. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, and over time that grows into us having a character of humility like our Savior. Second enemy of biblical thinking, of time and priorities, busyness. Busyness. Busyness is our like American intoxication. It used to be that people had to go to bed because daylight ended. Yes, you could have a fire or candlelight, but I, I just dare you to stay around a fire and not get sleepy at night. Like you're like, oh man, I camp out. I'm just like, it's eight o'clock already. Man, my body's tired or have candlelight and try to read by candlelight for a while. You're out. You're going to go to sleep. Hopefully you blow the candle out before you do that. But with our electricity and our screens and our streaming services and our day shifts and night shifts, we are a culture that sleeps less and thinks we do more. We sleep less. I mean, statistically, you just look at how much less we sleep as a, as a world than 50 years ago, than 100 years ago. In the 1940s and 50s, scientists and philosophers looked at the future and they saw the wonderful technological advances, ovens that cook food, better shelter, things are faster, refrigerators that keep food, washing machines and dryers, and later on, dishwashers. You don't even have to wash your dishes. You put them in something, hit a button, and it washes it for you. Now robot vacuums. You don't even have to vacuum. You just program a thing and it vacuums for you. And as scientists of the 1940s and 50s were, were looking, peering at the future with all the advancements of technology, they said Americans will work about three days a week and will be off for about four months a year and will get it all done. And so their concern was that Americans would just have too much leisure time because of all these technological advances. Isn't that interesting? What happened? What happened? Why is that not true? Because with good advancements in technology, we try to do more and more and more and more and more. We drive and we look at texts and check emails. We eat and talk on the phone and watch Netflix. We shop online as we listen to an audiobook, clip our nails, and go over emails. We never slow down. We rarely stop, actually full stop. And life is a continual race to do more, to earn more, to be more, to post more, to have more, more, more. The world wants everything big and fast and flashy, yet the way of our Savior is slow and patient and small and hidden. Friends, in adopting busyness as the norm, many of us may be adopting a worldliness that we haven't even considered. We're we're guarding our hearts and eyes from a pornographic culture and adopting the busyness and idolatry of the culture. Friends, a a busy pace may be worldliness. 
in our lives that we have not considered. Friends, busyness is something we as an elder team are concerned about for ourselves and for our church family. I got rebuked a few weeks back by a friend, an elder, who is like, hey, you and Kristen need to get away. Lives are busy, pretty full, added more kids, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm planning on a two-night getaway for Kristen and me. And he was like, no, 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 that's not what I mean, like a two-night getaway. I'm like, a week, go, get away. You don't even get rejuvenated in two nights usually, especially if you have kids. Like, you got to breathe sometime. I was like, okay, that's helpful. This is an area I'm concerned for myself, my family, for us. This is an area I'm concerned that I've led poorly, that I want to lead better, and we need to think through holistically as a church. We don't want to be more like our culture than we are like Scripture, like God would want us to. So here's some different aspects of busyness to think about. Busyness as achievement rather than warning. With our culture, many think about busyness and they think it's an achievement. Yes, I'm a busy person. I feel fulfilled because my calendar's full, my life's full. If we have little downtime, little time with our spouse, our kids, our devotion time, or, or talking to a friend, or praying, or reading, that should be a warning light for us, not an achievement. For me, God gives me the gracious gift of migraine headaches. My family knows if, if I'm working so much and not sleeping well, there's a day coming where God just takes me down and I'm like out whether I want to or not. I'll be horizontal on the bed with medication and lights out. And if I don't do that, I'll be in the bathroom around the toilet and you can imagine how bad that is. Like laid out to slow down and stop. Friends, we don't want to adopt this American busyness mentality. Second, busyness with little time for quiet meditation on God's Word. If we're not feeding on God's Word, we will be a people that are malnourished. We will not prioritize what God prioritized. We will not rely on the Holy Spirit, but we will rely on our own strength. We will not be able to fight sin as easily. We will be anxious. We will let other voices be bigger than God's voice, and we'll begin to exchange the glory of God for lies. Friends, busyness is warning signs. Next, busyness and balancing yeses and nos. We often don't realize when we say yes to one thing, even good things, we are by default saying no to other things. When we say yes to Netflix, we are saying no to conversations with our spouse or kids or even sleep. Now, I'm not saying a family movie night or watching Netflix one time can't be rejuvenating. It can be a good yes. But if we are having passive entertainment night after night, day after day of our lives, just this passive entertainment, if that's our life, there is something we're probably saying no to that we should be saying yes to. It may be saying yes to rest, saying yes to prayer, saying yes to enjoying God, saying yes to good conversations, saying yes to exercise, saying yes to other things that actually build up our lives, build up our bodies, build up our souls for God's glory. We want to think through the best yeses and that there are yeses and nos. And when we say yes to something, we are saying no to other things. But we just got to think through that. 
Next, next enemy of biblical thinking is urgent versus important. I know these kind of concentric circles, these overlap, or the tyranny of the urgent. There's an illustration I saw years ago um, that was this idea. It's pretty messy, so I actually did it before, and it was quite a mess, so I was just like, I'll just explain it this time rather than actually getting everything. And the idea was you have a big jar, and beside the jar you have big rocks, little rocks, pebbles, sand, and water, and all of them can fit in the jar. They all can fit if they're put in the right order. The jar is your life. The big rocks are the priority, and it goes down in the priority. But if you start with the water into the sand, into the little pebbles, into the small rocks, into the big rocks, you can't actually fit all the big rocks in because the sand and the urgent things, the water, it all takes up the bottom and you can't get big rocks in. That's just an illustration to say if we don't have the right priorities and we don't put the right big things in our lives first, we will not get them in there. They will be squeezed out by the urgent things, by the water and the sand of life. So what are the big rocks? What are the big yeses that need to be our first yeses, our primary yeses? Well, obviously, biblically, God. So time and relationship with God, his word, and prayer is a massive priority. The massive priorities are things you sacrifice for. So getting up early, sacrificing time, maybe even money. Maybe you have a book allowance for your family. You're like, we're going to have godly books that help us learn. We're going to invest time and energy in growth and discipleship. God is the first priority. Second, if you're married, your spouse. Your spouse is the next big rock. Daily time with your spouse. Let me say that again daily time with your spouse. Now, I know we have military families and there's deployments and stuff like that. I get that. That's a difficult situation. But for the average person that you're in the same home as your spouse every day, daily time with your spouse. Weekly extended time with your spouse. That might be a date night. That might be going on walks together. I've told you guys many different times. I have friends who they actually don't like going out, but they like sit on their back porch and have sipping time and have a glass of wine and talk. Cool. Whatever. Just daily time, weekly rhythms, yearly getaways. And let me just say, uninterrupted time with your spouse is a big yes, married folks. And guys, it's our responsibility to make that happen. Guys, it's our responsibility to make that happen. Now, talk to the wife, how you get babysitters or whatever. Like, talk through that, but that needs to be regular, uninterrupted time with your spouse. Third big rock, children. If you have children, that's the next big rock. Prioritizing our children, their growth in the Lord, pouring into them. And friends, here's the thing about parenting. It takes a lot of time. And you don't always see the fruit. This isn't like the transaction where like in the American culture where like, you know, you, they're not the slot machine. You put in the quarter, you're like, so you see what happens. They're not like an investment where you're like, hey, this is going to, I'm going to put the money in and I'm going to get an investment in, in six months and the more money is going to pop out. No, it's investing and investing and investing. It's a slow process but it is a joyful, slow process. It's a blessing from the Lord. That's our third yes. Fourth is church family. The next priority biblically is for the bride of Christ. 
this family, the church family, the big rock into the jar of your life in the right order is for the church family. So that means worship gatherings. Our Sunday worship gatherings are important. Our community group, our D groups serving as a church, prioritizing this. The Bible says this is why you have spiritual gifts. Like the Holy Spirit has given you gifts for the body, for you to serve and others to serve you and for us to be built together for the body, to use those gifts. So the fourth is church family. And then fifth would be work, would be jobs. We would call it the toil of labor in our post-fall culture, post-fall world. It's a gift of God, but also a labor, and we want to honor God. Now note that any of these big rocks can be messed up in order. We can worship our work and neglect our spouse. We can worship our kids and neglect time with God. We can worship church and ministry serving and neglect date night with our husband or wife. So we've got to get the big rocks in the right order as well. And notice what I haven't said. I haven't said anything about friendships or eating or exercise, small rocks. I haven't said anything about car repair or home repair or hobbies or urgent things. That's the sand. I haven't said anything about social media scrolling or posting or YouTube watching or Netflix. That's the water. Do you see how living in the priorities affects the agenda of your life? And if you don't prioritize, you are saying yes to things that you may not be intending right now to say yes to. Friends, that's an enemy last enemy I'll talk about is distraction. We constantly are getting pinged. There's a, a book called Hamlet's Blackberry. The guy writes about, imagine you're in a big room at any time, any time, any time, someone can tap you on the shoulder. Tap you, tap you, tap you. That's what he says these do. Anytime, depending on your settings, tap, 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 tap. Tap, tap. You can be in that one-on-one -on -one conversation with your spouse. You can be in that good conversation with your kid. You can be in that good uh, uh, work mode when you're having energy and working. Ping, 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 ping. We've got to be careful there. Even in working on this message, this is how sad I am. So just get this. I'm working on this message at this point. I thought of an illustration I swipe over in Safari on my computer. I swipe past my email, see an email, read the email. After I read the email, I had no clue what I was going to search for. I was like, in, in having an illustration about being distracted, I got distracted. It's pathetic. And I was just like, oh my, like, what am I doing? Friends, it seems that for our generation that part of Christian maturity in this age is learning how to turn our phones off, how to not be disturbed and to be present in a moment, like with actual people, having conversations, looking people in the eyes. And that sounds crazy to people in their 80s and 70s probably. But for you guys in your teens... In 20s, that's real life. For 30s and 40s, you're like, I, I've lived kind of in and out of the, the technological age. But man, that's part of, guess, get this, Christian maturity. It's a big deal because we live in a distracted culture. And parents, we've got to disciple our kids in this or it will suck them in. Don't assume. 
So here's a few things just at the end of this distraction idea that to help you not be distracted, take a walk in creation with God without your phone, without your earbuds. Take a walk. Thank God for that bird, that blue bird that flew by you with the red chest, and you're like, oh, wow, I haven't seen that bright of a blue on a bird before. Thank God for him designing that bird. Have a conversation with real people who are in front of you. Have real focused time. Get this, thinking, writing, pondering, crafting, working with your hands, thinking with your mind, praying, dreaming. Those don't happen quickly. Those take time and thought and undistracted moments to honor God. And that's where the creativity, I mean, if you guys were here for the um, Christmas, what was that called? Where there's like the store thing? Craft, no, it wasn't called crafting. Holiday market, man, sorry. The holiday market, you saw people who had to do that at some point because they have artwork and literature and, you know, journals they put together and things like it's like woodworking. Like they had to take time. Friends, let us honor God and not be distracted. So that's the end of point one. Here we go. Point two. I'll keep you awake, maybe. Point two, biblical foundations for time and priorities. James 4 passage that we looked at earlier feels like James is writing and like off to the side is the scroll of Ecclesiastes. It just feels like here's Ecclesiastes and James is writing. Because when he says things like, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 15, he says, I, the preacher, this is Solomon, had been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is, this is funny, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And striving after wind. The, the word we would in the Hebrew is hevel. It's a mist. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon is saying life is hevel. It is a breath. It is a mist. If you've seen someone smoking a cigar or a pipe and they blow it, I always think of Gandalf. Like, uh, he like blows out the like, ship or something. He's like blowing out uh, smoke. That's what life is. It's a mist. And if you are putting your hope in this life, you will be sorely disappointed. Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Whitaker recently came out with a book on, about Ecclesiastes entitled True Life. It's for ladies, but I found it excellent as I was having trouble sleeping at night. Not that it put me to sleep, but it helped me think about Hevel and how life is in the midst of, I grabbed it off my wife's stack of books that were in the room. I was like, oh, this looks interesting in the middle of the night. And it helps us, Ecclesiastes teaches us how to be biblical realists. That life is hard, life is short, and it is lots of toil this side of the fall. 
So there are parts of life that we should hate, and there are parts of life that we should enjoy. That's what Ecclesiastes 2 gets at. Mahaney says this, here's good reason, number one, to hate life. Welcome to the new year. (laughs) Death erases any lead you once held as a result of your toil. Death erases any lead you once held as a result of your toil. You can work for years to get ahead in your possessions and finances and child rearing and job promotion, and then you die. Man, we've got to look that in the face. Be a biblical realist. Reason number two to hate your life, or not hate your life, hate life. <laughs> I hope you don't hate your life. Death transfers all your work to someone else, and who knows if he or she will be qualified to look after it. Let's read Ecclesiastes 2 that talks all about that. So all the toil you spend to build a business, a home, a savings account will get transferred to someone else who may blow it. Solomon literally had this happen. He died, and as soon as he died, Rehoboam, his son, took over. He didn't listen to Solomon's counselors. He listened to his own counselors, and, and these are the new guys, and the kingdom blows up and is divided. Rehoboam, in not many days, lost everything that David and Solomon worked for. But Solomon encourages us, as you keep reading Ecclesiastes, you're like, man, this is super depressing. <laughs> Enjoy parts of your life. Here's the way of wisdom. Enjoy parts of your life. Here's what he says to enjoy. He says, enjoy God. Fear God. Have reverence for God and worship God. Enjoy God. Second, enjoy your spouse if you're married. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy God, enjoy your spouse, enjoy the ordinary. That's something we don't think well on as Americans. Enjoy ordinary, slow moments. It says rejoice in your days. Rejoice in a meal. Rejoice in a glass of wine. Rejoice in a conversation. Enjoy a walk. Enjoy a drive. Enjoy laughter. Enjoy humor. Enjoy the hevel. Friends, enjoy God. Enjoy a spouse. Enjoy ordinary moments. Remember, let's pull back of the main points today. God is in control, so be humble. Life is toil, so be a realist. Life is a mist, so enjoy it. What if we lived that way this year? What if we lived the 365 days of 2023 with that? We grow in humility because we trust God. He's in control. We can turn that wheel all day long. But we trust that He's ultimately in control, that we have a biblical realism. We don't have unrealistic expectations that everything is going to be grand and perfect in life, because that's not what the Bible says. We don't hold God to promises that he never made. The Bible says life is hevel. It's toil. It's struggle. It's hard. Let's be realists, but also believing that life is a mist. Enjoy the ordinary. 
And I'm just going to really quickly do my third point because we don't have time. In the Bible, there's talking about um, biblical view of time, like 24 hours in a day, and it's broken up into kind of four portions. A book called the, the Imperfect Pastor, which I am. It's a great book. I've read it a couple times. You don't need to read it, but it talks about breaking this up and how do you rest and how do you think about each part of the day. And let me just quickly go through this. I could get in one-on-one conversations about this later if it's helpful. But he talks about four portions of the day. First portion is the morning. In the Bible, when it's talking about morning, most of the time, and these, these are just bands of actual time, 6 a.m. to noon. Maybe you get up at 5, maybe you get up at 7. Like, just add whatever. You can shift it. But morning, 6 a.m. to noon, in the Bible, we see morning as a time of new mercies. It's a time with the Lord, or as Psalm 30, verse 5 says, joy comes in the morning. Hope, the sunrise, the night worries and the night terrors are laid to rest. We think better and often less cluttered in the morning. So the morning is defined by grace. Praising God for new morning mercies. Then the afternoon is noon to 6 p.m. The Bible often talks about noon or that midday as hard. The afternoon is fatiguing. Matthew 20, 12, the burden of the day, the scorching of the heat. There's distraction in the afternoon. Zach Eswine says, grace is sifted in the afternoon. Like, you, you, you eat lunch. You know the worst time to lecture if you're a teacher? Right after lunch. I've taught classes, and I'm just like, man, they are nodding. You guys are doing pretty well, by the way, today with staying up to, till midnight. Like, nodding off. Why? Because the afternoon brings fatigue. And here's the temptation for the happy hour. The temptation to flee the grace path comes in the afternoon. Zach Eswine says this, if the morning beckons us to sing, the afternoon humbles us into a remembrance that we need his salvation. The morning teaches us to praise, the afternoon teaches us patience and perseverance. Oh man, it's helpful to me to think about, okay, here's the struggle I have in the afternoon. Like to actually think, here are my temptations in the afternoon that maybe aren't there in the morning. Here's how I work better, think better, act, you know, thoughtfully better morning versus afternoon. And then evening, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. At evening, the disciples want to send people away, uh, you know, go get their own food. And Jesus asked them to feed people with five loaves and two fish. Evening, Eswine says, is the time of hospitality and thanksgiving. Evening promotes ordinary joys. Evening promotes ordinary joys. Family, friends, food, rest from the toil of the day. So if mornings give grace, and if afternoons are where we persevere in the toil, our evenings promote ordinary joys. But if we give in to the afternoon distractions and temptations, the evening shows the foolishness, right? The evening exposes what is sown in the afternoon temptations. Then the fourth is the night watch, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Night watch speaks of sleep. Sleep speaks of rest. It's a gift to us. A third 
of our 24 hours in a day is to lay horizontally and do nothing. That's how God set us up, to lay horizontally and do nothing. If God were concerned about our efficiency as his highest priority, he would not have had us sleep for about eight hours on average for an adult per night. Study after study shows that proper sleep affects our health, it affects our job performance, it affects our emotional stability, it affects our character, our sleep patterns. In the Bible, the night speaks of solitude. If you're up in the middle of the night, it's solitude with God and His Word. When sleep's feeding, it's bidding us to prayer. For God is there. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He knows you're up. He knows when you lay down and when you rise. Or like the night watchman, we keep watch on our hearts when we're awake in the middle of the night. We meditate on God's promises in the middle of the night. We read things that will serve us in the middle of the night. We pray for the grace to sleep, to go back to sleep, to rest, to trust, to breathe, to slow down. Those are kind of four portions. I would just encourage you, dive into some of that on a biblical study. I didn't say everything that could be said. But friends, we probably need to be reset in some of these ways. Today's January 1st, New Year's Day. We woke up. We got into that grocery cart. We grabbed the wheel. We're thinking about 2023, but we are not in control. God is in control, so be humble. Life is toil, so be a realist. Life is a mist, so let's enjoy it. Let's pray.